Talo Falava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up, we've got more budget updates, this time from Samoa and the Cooks. Also, this time around, it's like I've really put my head right in. More females are needed in PNG's parliament. And later, I think young people have some of the greatest power. Whereas here in New Zealand, more youth need to vote in this year's elections. Samoa's parliament has approved its national budget for the 2023 to 2024 financial year. The budget totals 1 billion and 8,000 tala, the equivalent of around 400 million US dollars. Fino Funoa has more. It's the first time Samoa's budget has exceeded a billion tala. The new budget is 134 million tala or about 50 million US dollars more than last year's budget. Samoa's Ministry of Health received the largest allocation of funds, totaling over 146 million tala. The second largest allocation of funds went to the Ministry of Education, Sports and Culture, who received a total of over 139 million tala. According to the Central Bank of Samoa, the historically high budget reflects a healthy external position for the national economy. But eyes are raised at the deficit, which the budget report records at 185.7 million tala. The budget is also supported by assistance grants, totaling 165.4 million tala, the majority of which covers development and infrastructure projects. Meanwhile, the head of tourism Cook Islands has labelled this year's budget a pragmatic one. 5.7 million US dollars has been set aside for Cook Islands Tourism Corporation. Chief Executive Carla Eagleton told Lydia Lewis the tourism funding allocation was expected. The budget appropriation for 23-24 uh, for Cook Islands Tourism Corporation was planned and expected. And it's primarily because of the phase of recovery that we're in currently. In this last financial year, 22-23, we have now completed the uh, onset of four inaugural flights. And so for the next 12 months, we're going to be focused on getting those flights up and running. However, beyond the next financial year, we would be expecting the Cook Islands government to see the value of tourism and would have seen the work that we've been doing to recover. And once we've reached our targets, uh, we will be expecting Cook Islands government to support uh, tourism um, as as the economic uh, regrowth. Were you disappointed at all that the figure remained the same, 9.4 million that I can see? No, not at all. Right now, in the next 12 months, we need to focus on filling planes, focus on getting airlift back to where it was in 2019 levels. And uh, I would expect that in the next uh, four to six months, once the data comes in on the performance of the four new uh, routes that we have developed in the last 12 months, we'll be in a better position to understand uh, the future needs of tourism. And with the minimum wage increasing, what impacts does that have on the tourism sector? 
The Cook Islands Tourism's recovery doesn't go without other additional issues and labour has been a significant problem that we're all trying to address right now. The increase in the minimum wage is effective across the nation as a whole but for the Cook Islands very few people in the tourism industry are on minimum wage and so the increase in the wage by 50 cents to $9 an hour is going to pretty much affect uh, other industries, in particular government employment. Uh, our biggest issue in the, industry, in the tourism sector will be capturing and engaging with la- foreign labour uh, because there is a lot more attractive options outside of the Cook Islands. Yeah, and this is an issue that's been obviously going on for quite a while. Last time I did a story on this, operators were looking elsewhere to get workers. Where is the focus at the moment? Are workers being brought in from other countries? Yes. Uh, we are, we're, we're entering our high season right now and uh, labour is, is, is critical. Uh, foreign labour, uh, we've seen an exodus over, over COVID times. We've seen that outward migration by Cook Islanders and foreign workers. Uh, we've lost them to New Zealand and to Australia predominantly. And uh, we're really looking at ways in which we can build back that resource. Uh, to help support the industry. It's been very challenging and so we've got to, uh, because of the competitive nature of the employment market, everybody's looking for uh, staff and uh, it is no different for us. So we keep looking at ways in which we can attract workers to the Cook Islands. Was there anything passed in this budget that would do that, that would help attract workers? I think it's not about what uh, what gets passed in budget. It's not it's not the money that is going to uh, help us in our recovery and being able to address situations. It's being able to sit down together and work collectively with the resource that we have. I I think that um, if we got some cross collaboration within agencies to address some of these issues, working with the private sector and reaching out to our uh, stakeholders and partners in New Zealand and Australia, I think that we, we would have a good opportunity to start solving the problem. That's not to say that we don't have our internal issues that we need to be addressing, but it's not all financial. It's also about working smarter, working more effectively, and uh, really pinning down uh, the strategic uh, direction that we want to be taking. This has been labelled a tough budget. Why was this a tough budget? Uh, So it's my understanding that uh, coming out of COVID, uh, when the Cook Islands was, um, we were under a hiatus for tourism, the borders closed and our number one economic driver uh, came to a grinding halt. Our our Cook Island government uh, took a lot of reserves and really put it back into the private sector, making sure people remained employed and making sure businesses stayed afloat as best they can. Uh, We're now entering into an era of uh, debt equity management and uh, making sure that Cook Island's government uh, are prudent in their spends. Uh, because uh, times will be tough in the next three to four years. We will have to, as a country, work together to ensure that we can stay afloat, uh, stay abreast of the needs and um, keep managing uh, the best that we can. The budget this year was difficult because uh, we are now take countries taking on debt that we haven't seen in a long time and so we just have to adapt to uh, what that additional pressure will place on us. 
I think we're doing a good job. I think that the budget this year was uh, uh, pragmatic. It was what it needed to be, a balance between keeping economic, uh, keeping business uh, going, uh, putting investments where we need to to uh, ensure that uh, the economy remains, but also uh, allowing to look after uh, the social sector as well. Increasing awareness throughout Papua New Guinea on Bougainville's quest for independence will be the main focus for Francesca Simoso, who's running for parliament. Ms Simoso was one of the first three women to win a reserved seat in Bougainville in the first election for an autonomous Bougainville government in 2005. The former radio personality is being backed by the ruling Pangu Party and Prime Minister James Marape, who says they're backing her because they need more women elected to the national parliament. Don Wiseman spoke with Ms. Samoso and began by asking her why she's thrown her hat in. I ran in 2012, but not kind of really prepared. I, I just wanted to like have a feel of what it's like to run for the national election. So this time around, it's like I've really put my head right in, right in, and have prepared well for that as well, yes. And why? It's a long time since you got involved in politics. Well, I, I, I believe, you know, there's a time... For everything meaning, it's like, yeah, I've kind of like had a quiet time to sit down and have a look at what's happening around. And most importantly, um, the ratification for Bougainville's independence is a very important issue that needs to be dealt with. It will need leadership. It will need leadership and someone who is kind of very well versed on, on, on what it was like, what it's like now and what it would be like. So it is important that I'm, I'm putting my hand up saying, well, you know, I'm putting my hand up. I'm pretty sure I've I've got some corporate memory about what Bougainville has been through. And it's important at this time that, that we have a woman go. We have a woman to go to the national parliament and actually be able to, to sensitize and to make our national MPC understand what we've gone through. Uh, what we're going through now, the reason why people voted for independence that came out to be the result of 97.7. And personally, for me, I can't just sit back and watch what unfolds in front of us in Bougain villages. It's disheartening at the same time. It's, you know, it, it makes you feel that, hey, I can go and help. We've gone very quiet. We, we're really quiet about it. And for a person like me, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, what are we doing? Why are we so quiet about this? The people have taken the vote, and we can't just let the vote be sitting there and we watch it from afar and say, well, it's there. People have spoken, but what do we do with it now? When it says independence for Bougainville won't happen before 2025 and not later than 2027, the date has been set. Now, we need to massage this. We need to start dialoguing it. We need to start massaging it. You know, So taking that vote was the easiest thing I can say. I was speaking just last week with Ezekiel Massart, and he told me about the, the anger there is in the ABG about a decision by the national government, by Mr Marape's government, to change the, the vote that will be held on the resolution to an absolute majority instead of a simple majority, which Mr Massart believed had been what was agreed earlier. Where do you stand on that, given that you're closely associated with the Pangu Party, the party of James Marape? To be honest with you, we work with the person. Like what they say in English, it's better to work with the devil that you know than working with somebody that you don't know. You know, the, the most important thing is this is the first time that Parliament has actually tabled on the floor of Parliament 
what their thoughts are. And I believe they've said what they said. Did we hear that correctly? And if that's what we've heard, then where do we go from here? How do we start talking about it? How do we massage what we've heard? I'm for one, I will say, what the hell is that? Why is it going that way? Now that we've heard what has been said, how do we, as Bougainville, how do we, as the government of ABG, deal with that? And yes, I am getting endorsed by, by Pangu Party. And this is the government of the day. Who else can endorse me? For me, it is okay that I'm endorsed by this party, then I can go and say, well, thank you for endorsing me as a candidate. The issue of Bougainville is there. It is there. We need to deal with what people of Bougainville want to hear about the 97.7 and about their future. They want to hear this. Now, we should not shy away from discussing Bougainville's future. The date has been said not before 2025 and not later than 2027. I am for Bougainville. We know that there have been MPs in the PNG Parliament who have a very negative view about that, who don't want to lose Bougainville. And if it comes to a vote, and it has to be an absolute majority, two-thirds of the Parliament, and it goes against the prevailing desire in Bougainville for independence, how would you feel? What would you do? Well, to be honest with you, a lot has not been said yet. There's a lot more dialogue that needs to take place right now. Even before that vote is taken on the floor of Parliament, there has to be genuine dialogue right now between um, ABG and the National Parliament. So there has been talk that has taken place. There needs to be more for those that are currently in the, in, in the government right now in, in Papua New Guinea. How many of them would have some idea as to what Bougainville has gone through? So... Two parliaments need to be working together now. ABG Parliament and the National Parliament need to be talking now. So there needs to be more dialogue amongst our parliamentarians. You know, Masad and our team in Bougainville, we need to come here and do workshops with our parliamentarians here. We need to educate them as to what happened, where we've been to where we are and to where we are going. As New Zealand's elections draws near, it's anticipated that more eligible youth will enrol to vote. Currently, only 60% of 18 to 24-year-olds have enrolled, which is a little low when compared to other age brackets that have enrolment rates of 80% or above. UNICEF Aotearoa Young Ambassadors are hoping to increase those numbers this year, as well as urging government leaders to, in their words, step up and do more to tackle climate change, both in New Zealand and the Pacific. Joining me is Nele Kalolo, who's one of the newest ambassadors. Kia ora, Nele. Why did you want to get involved with UNICEF? I think for me, like, UNICEF is one of those organisations everyone, like, knows about. Even, like, in Samoa, like, my whole family and everyone there, um, they always, like, talk about it and they learnt about it in school. And so for me, I grew up in a community um, where there was a lot of, like, systemic marginalisation and gaps. And so in South Auckland, when there's an issue, we don't complain. We just get up and do the work. And we saw it a lot during like the um, COVID pandemic, especially with our youth, our young people at the forefront of like fighting issues. Um, a lot of our young people are dropping out of high school um, to be able to provide for their families, um, as well as like looking at like groups like 40K who were like pushing for um, Pacific Southern Noir um, in the climate crisis. And so for me, like I always thought that UNICEF could really use our South Auckland like present it could presence. It could really use like um all these like solutions that I've seen my community like create for ourselves um and use it to like platform I guess just using UNICEF to like platform South Auckland to the world was really my intent when I applied for the role. Why do you feel so strongly about 
encouraging Pacifica youth to vote in this year's elections? I think like it's, I think young people have some of the greatest power in Aotearoa, especially looking at Auckland Central. In the last election, it was predominantly a national supporting area. Um, but the Greens Party, Chloe Salisbury, had really mobilised a lot of our young people. And so now Auckland Central is actually a green supporting area. Um, and so I think for me, like, it really showcased how powerful when our young people come together and vote, we can actually bring the issues that are really important to us to the forefront, knowing that, you know, a lot of our young people are very supportive of, like, climate change. And so if we get more of our young people to vote, our, you know, our issues are actually brought to the table and we can have a government that actually, like, reflects what our young people want. What are some of the issues that you believe still needs to be addressed by the country's leaders? Oh, definitely massive one, climate change. Um, obviously, we know our Pacific nations are the most affected um, by the climate issues today. Um, and so, obviously, seeing the work of like our Pacific nations, Vanuatu and Tuvalu right now are pushing for um, the Fossil Fuels Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, moving away from fossil fuels and creating that equitable shift. Um, as well as seeing our other nations like Fiji, just according to support it, and as well as our Pacific Climate Warriors and Aotearoa has really been moving that movement. Um, I think for me, the important thing is making sure we're centering lived experiences of those who are mostly affected by the climate change. So obviously, like Indigenous and Pacific communities, um, and making sure that when we center these lived experiences, actual outcomes and actual change can occur for our communities. Um, and of course, mental health. I work a lot in the health sector, and I grew up seeing the effects of like negative mental health in my community, and the the effects negative mental health has on our youth as well. I think a lot about our Pacific youth in South Auckland, how many skills, how much talent we have, but the lack of confidence mm. that a lot of our young people have, and like the barriers mental health has on them. Um, and so I think when we address mental health in Aotearoa, we actually like platform our young people to really reach that full potential and in reaching their full potential they realize there is no limit and they can continue to grow and continue to be empowered um, to really empower our communities as well. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back head over to rnzi.com slash programs. You can also download us on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, tofa soifua.